2: all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 301 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM Network. I'm your host, Dan Gunther, and joining me is the other host, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm just the other, and I am
0: doing well. <laughs> just the other. <laughs> I'm just the other, I'm just that other one over there reading in the corner. That's me in the corner reading a Trek book. (laughs) Oh, that's a
1: new opening to our show right there. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Well, on today's episode of literary treks, we are going to be talking about a Star Trek Voyager novel Um, This is not a new release, unfortunately, but it is a classic novel from back in the day. We are going to be talking about Seven of Nine by Christy Golden in the feature today. And we have a special guest joining us for that discussion. So you Voyager fans out there listening, this might be a familiar voice to you if you perhaps listen to podcasts that have to do with Voyager.
0: Ooh, yeah, especially on this network. Hmm.
1: Interesting. I wonder who it could be. I don't know. You have a one in three chance of getting it right. Ooh, I'm excited. Okay. Well, I will find that out when we get to our feature. But before we do that, we do have some news to share with you this week in the world of Star Trek books and comics. And unfortunately, it's not the best news, sadly. So, As all of you out there know, the world is currently contending with the COVID-19 outbreak, which has put a lot of uh, businesses on hold. And one of those businesses is the comics distribution industry, sadly. So we have gotten word that there are delayed releases from Star Trek comics that were meant to come out over the next little while. So among the issues that are delayed are year five from issue number 11 onwards. Issue 11 was originally due to come out in February. Uh, we also have the con-focused original series Mirror Universe one-shot, which was supposed to be coming out in March. And the Deep Space Nine series Too Long a Sacrifice, which was meant to start in April. So all of those have been pushed uh Forward into the future. They are unfortunately delayed. And there is also a reissue of an older comic that is delayed as well, and that's the reissue of the Dead of Honor graphic novel, uh, which was due to come out in June. Uh, Very much too bad that we're going to have to wait for these, but uh, we will be getting them at some point in the future. None of them have been canceled only delayed. So, Bruce, what are your thoughts on this unfortunate delay that we're going to be experiencing in the world of Trek comics?
0: Well, I'm, of course, disappointed that we're not getting these sooner, that we're going to have this break for probably several months or so before we get any new Star Trek comics That being said, you know, we went through a break for a while where we didn't have any new Star Trek novels. And we got through that because there's so many things in the back catalog in novels and comics that we can read. So I'm not that disappointed that I have to wait. I mean, I'm a little disappointed, but I know we'll eventually get them. What I'm really concerned about is what this is going to do to the whole comic industry, Mm -hmm. how that's going to affect Star Trek comics going forward any comics and any franchise or anything because, you know, I'm hearing people talking about this could affect your local retailer, that some of these comic shops are going to start closing because there's no distribution of the comics. And I've even heard rumor that comics could go all, just stay all digital and no physical copies from some publishers. I think that's what I'm concerned about is just see how this plays out. But I, I think we'll continue to get start. Trek comics for a while, but I hope this isn't such a huge impact on IDW that even they go out of business.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely scary times for a lot of industries right now, including the comics industry, like you say. There's actually, uh, just as an aside, uh, one of my favorite places to visit when I go to Vancouver is the Stormcrow Tavern. And it's this really nerdy, geeky, Place where you know they have different board games for you to play, and all the drinks and menu items are all based on things from Star Wars, Star Trek, D and D, Lord of the Rings, all that sort of stuff. And they've unfortunately announced that, uh, regardless of what happens with COVID nineteen, they will be unable to reopen, no matter when uh, things get back on track. So you know, there's a lot of businesses really hurting. And a lot that will not be able to come back from this sort of thing. So, you know, keep an eye on especially your independently owned uh, comic shops and restaurants and things like that. You know, try and support them as much as you can once things get, quote unquote, back to normal. That's whatever that normal looks like. So, uh, yeah, it's really unfortunate. So here's what I'm thinking, Dan. And I haven't talked to you about this yet.
0: So, But I'm going to do it here on the show. So tell me either way. But... I would like us to review an old comic in next week's episode. Since we aren't getting a new comic, it won't be part of the feature, but our next episode will review this comic as if it were new and Hmm. it'll be a one shot. And it's something I've been wanting to do for a while. And there was a deep space nine comic that came out in 1995 written by Aaron Eisenberg. Oh, I'm fascinated. Yeah. It's a nog. Of course, it's a Nog-centric comic. It's called The Rules of Diplomacy. It's a one-shot celebrity series, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and uh, by Malibu Comics. So if you're up for it, we can just do a brief review of that comic in honor of Aaron. I like it. I, I think that's a great idea. I'd be definitely game for that. Okay. So if you guys can find these, like a used copy online or a digital copy somewhere or whatever, and you guys want to read it before next episode, we will review that comic again by Malibu Comics. It's the Rules of Diplomacy written by Nog himself, Aaron Eisenberg.
1: Excellent. I'm really looking forward to that now. That's cool. (laughs) Cool. Well, before we get to the feature, we should go over some feedback that we got from the last episode over in the Babel conference. So this is for Literary Treks 300, Miss Cleo's Just a Spectre. That was our last episode of Literary Treks. So uh, to start out with, we have a comment from Jeffrey Harlan who says, loved the meta-commentary on canon versus tie-in media, and the shout-outs to the comics of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So that's in reference to a part of the last novel we reviewed, The Higher Frontier by Christopher L. Bennett. And in that novel, he makes some really cool references to tie-in media and comics, and specifically the Gold Key comics (laughs) kind of making them an in-universe part of Star Trek, which I also thought was really cool. So thanks for that, Jeffrey.
0: Yeah, that is that is really cool. I love that. And Justin Ozer says, congratulations on 300 episodes of Literary Tracks." And then he goes on later to say in a separate comment, great discussion on a novel that I really enjoyed. Is there in truth, no beauty is actually a favorite TOS episode for me. It does have a few issues, but overall I find it very compelling. So being a fan of that episode, I was delighted to see Carlos and Miranda Jones here. And I also love the Anar and Dorians and Thalen. So that made me even more excited. And he goes on about how he enjoyed the new humans that were in this novel and also referred to in the motion picture novelization. And he likes seeing Terrell and check on the Reliant and uh, about the telepathy in Star Trek and the references to other Star Trek books, comics, and games, etc., which were laced throughout this book, which we talked about in that episode. So overall, he says, this is an excellent novel that I thoroughly enjoyed. I give it five out of five, Medusans transporting people in danger to another dimension.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for that, Justin. Very high rating for that novel. So definitely a fan of that as well. And, and yeah, thanks. 300 episodes. It's pretty cool. Uh, we, of course, Bruce and I were not on every one of those episodes, but it's definitely a huge milestone for literary treks. And, uh, thanks for the congratulations.
0: Yeah. And I'm sorry that we didn't do any big 300 thing, but you know, there's just a lot of things going on and we just never got around to, we discussed like, Hey, we should do something, but we just never came up with anything.
1: (laughs) Well, Oz Trekkie brings up the fact that it was our thrown-out episode as well and offers his congratulations. And he actually had some comments about that too, wondering why there weren't any party poppers and party sound effects in that episode, because uh, he he expected more fanfare and, and wants more when we reach episode 400. So we'll see what we can do about that. Well, you know what it is. It's
0: like the older you get, the more you're like, yeah, you know, we don't need to have a birthday party. Oh, I'm too old for that. Once you reach 300, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that. We don't need to do anything special.
1: (laughs) Well, fair enough. And, and yeah, Oz Trekkie, has been a loyal listener. He's listening to the back catalog of episodes right now. He says uh, he has, still has 84 more episodes to get through, but he's chugging along, which is really impressive. Uh, so thank you so much for that. He also talks a little bit about the novel that we reviewed last week. He says, once again, Christopher L. Bennett plucks little bits of Star Trek lore and stitches it together into a fantastic story. I enjoyed the way he explained the way there were no more new humans as they were a big part of the early pocketbook Star Trek storyline, Triangle and the Prometheus design, and then Disappeared now we know why. I do enjoy the way that Christopher drops his nods to parts of Star Trek lore. Uh, If this was the first Star Trek book you have ever read, it would make sense reading it. But if you were like most who listen to podcasts about Star Trek books, you knew where the Easter eggs were dropped. I give this four out of five extra-dimensional spaces where you can hide a telepathic species from their aggressors. Those four out of five extra-dimensional spaces are very important to telepathic species hiding from their aggressors. So thank you so much for that excellent rating. And then the last comment we had is from
0: a guy named Bruce Gibson. That's me. And I said, I apologize for my bad reading of excerpts in this book and the bad imitations and accents of our TOS characters. While I was editing this episode, I cringed. (laughs) (laughs) And Justin Ozer replies, I laughed when you did an exaggerated Chekhov accent of Chekhov saying his accent is exaggerated in the tie-in materials. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I do have to admit while we were recording that I was kind of holding back a laugh at that point as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good.
0: At least somebody got a laugh out of it.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for your comments. And just a reminder here to visit the Babel Conference, there will be a post for this episode. Leave your comments there and we will read them on the air. So without further ado, what do you say, Bruce? We welcome our special guest into the studio to discuss... Seven of Nine. Well, in today's feature, we are traveling back to the late 90s for a classic Star Trek Voyager novel. This is a novel that came out during the numbered run way back when. It's Voyager number 16, Seven of Nine by Christy Golden. But we can't discuss this novel alone, just me and Bruce, so we've invited a special guest onto the show so Suzanne Williamson, welcome to Literary Treks. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's a first for me. Yeah, we're excited to have a new face and a new voice on the podcast. Thanks yeah. for joining us.
0: Yeah, oh, so you are you asking. familiar with Voyager, Suzanne? Uh, <laughs> a little bit. I mean, just a little bit. I just host
2: to The Journey with Liam and Zachary. So, you know, I know a little bit about it.
0: Oh, that's good. That's good. Then you're perfect to be on this episode.
1: Wow. We couldn't have done that better if we'd planned it. Wait a minute. (laughs) So, seven of nine. First of all, what I want to ask uh, to begin with is, for each of you, is this your first time reading this novel, or had you read this before? So, Suzanne, we'll start with you.
2: This is not my first time reading it. I actually read it when it came out in 1998, and did not recall reading it until I started reading it again. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember this one. Cause it was, <laughs> it was, it was very interesting. Cause it almost mirrored an episode that came a few months later on the show.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk about that because awesome. yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Uh, Bruce, was this one you'd read before or was this your first time?
0: No, this is the first time I read this one. When this novel came out, uh, Kate Mulgrew called me and said, Don't bother reading it. And I was like, okay. She's like, Yeah, read a Captain Janeway novel instead. I'm like, okay. What? No, of course that didn't happen. Um but no. so I'll send you a mosaic. Just leave this one aside. <laughs> pathways, <right>. read pathways. <laughs> yes. There you go. And I have read those. So yes, both of those I've read. But no, this I never read this one. I don't know why. Well, I kind of know why, because at that point things were busier in my life. I was getting ready to get married and buy a house and stuff. So I know like in the late nineties to early two thousands, I kind of fell off of some novels that keeping up with them
1: like I should. So this is the first time I've read this one. Excellent. Yeah. This is my first time reading it as well. I, I never read it. Actually it's funny because way back when I was, um, voyager started coming out right when i started kind of reading the novels on a more regular basis so i kind of had it in my head i'm going to collect all of the voyager novels this new series starting i'm really excited and i think that lasted for like eight or nine novels and then i just kind of stopped (laughs) there's so many of them and i you know but uh so i had never read this one back in the day but i see that this last month it was on special uh, for ninety nine cents, so I picked up the digital copy because I don't have a hard copy of it, and that's how I read it so uh it's really cool those Star Trek book deals that pop up every once in a while,
0: yeah, yeah, I saw it was ninety nine cents, and um I went and got it too that way,
1: so well, at the time this came out nineteen ninety eight uh it was probably about a year and a bit after the character of Seven of Nine had been introduced on Star Trek Voyager. And I think it's pretty clear that, you know, the title of this novel and the cover is kind of meant to capitalize on, I would say, the popularity of this new character. This was the first novel in the Voyager line to feature that character. So the title Seven of Nine, I just want to start with that. Do you guys think that that's kind of an appropriate title for this book? Or if it hadn't have been for when it was published, would it maybe have had a different title? Mm. If you're
0: going to get a novel that is named after a character, you would expect that it's it's kind of a biography or Mm -hmm. something like that of the character. And this was a Seven of Nine story, but I wouldn't have called it Seven of Nine.
2: No, no. Mm. A better title would have been Sing a Song of Sixpence. <gasps> yes.
1: yes. <laughs> or uh, I, one that I saw suggested online, Quoth the Raven, would have been an interesting <laughs> title as well. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> but yeah. No, I, I, I guess where I'm going, like, in my mind, if this were an episode of Voyager, and I actually think this book would make an interesting episode of Voyager, and like we kind of hinted at, Maybe it's very much like an episode Mm -hmm. of Voyager that we'll talk about. I don't think it would have been called Seven of Nine, right?
0: No.
2: No, it would have to have like a one-word title to fit in with most of the other Voyager
0: episodes. So you can't really remember (laughs) which
2: one it's about.
0: Yeah, it would just be called (laughs) Seven. That's what it would be called. (laughs) 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 But no, I agree with because. I would think if there was an episode of Voyager called Seven of Nine, it would be the episode where she appears for the first time. Mm-hmm. I don't see that coming later unless it was, again, like a biography. But even then, I don't think they would call it that. I just really think this is to take advantage of the introduction of the character. She's new, she's popular, she's been around for a year. And here's this novel called Seven of Nine. And it just like, it's, hey, it's a Seven of Nine novel. Go buy it. You know, it's more a marketing thing.
1: Yeah, I agree. Totally. I feel like this is kind of really apparent now, like we're over two decades after (laughs) this has been released. So that's kind of sticking out to me now. And like when it was released, I think that makes total sense. But now I'm kind of like oh, why is this called Seven of Nine? I don't understand. And then you kind of go into it and realize, okay, this is the first novel to feature her, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then it all kind of of falls into place. But, you know, 20 plus years later, it doesn't (laughs) seem to make a lot of sense. Well,
0: but we do get insight into the character. So it's not just a Seven of Nine adventure. We do really get some insight into her and probably more insight than we had at that point, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Yeah, I would say that's definitely true, for sure. So with that in mind, you know, what are kind of some of the insights that we get into Seven of Nine here? Because it's not just like Seven of Nine as she is on Voyager now, but we also get a little bit of a peek into her past, both as a Borg a little bit, but also into her life before assimilation as the young Annika Hansen.
0: Yeah, I... uh... You know, I, I I don't know how much I want to go into this. There's so much. Uh, I feel like we get a lot of her about Annika Hansen. We start to get more of what it was like as a child. I mean, we're not really getting many patterns of what happened to her, mm-hmm. but just more of her experiences within the collective and what her, I guess some of her experiences before that were. But I don't feel like we're getting like a true represent. I guess at the time, if you read reading this novel, when it first came out, you're probably feeling like you're learning more about her. But i already know so much about her that I didn't feel like I was mm-hmm. learning that much about her. Yeah. You learn more about her while watching the episode,
2: The Raven, You learn yes. more about Annika and her past there than I think you do in this
1: novel. That's true. Yet yeah, I was kind of, I had this thought while I was reading this novel as well is because Seven of Nine was such a popular character to write for, for the show, I feel like a lot of the ground that's covered in this novel kind of eventually gets covered in Voyager. And we've been kind of dancing around the issue of how much this book is like the episode infinite regress from season five, but it's also got elements of a lot of other episodes because I think the writers kind of go to that well of writing interesting stories for seven of nine a lot. So, you know, because they're not beholden to what happens in the books and, you know, 99% of the time, probably completely aware, unaware of what happens in the books. You know, a lot of that sort of exploration might get a bit repeated in the show.
0: Yeah. I, I agree. Like, Suzanne, when you were saying about The Raven, I rewatched that episode while I was reading this book. And yeah. I do that often. I start reading a book, I'm like, oh, this is like that episode. Well, now I want to go watch <laughs> that episode. And so when I watched The Raven, I thought, Afterwards, coming back to this book, I thought these two really complement each other really well. If anybody who's listening right now hasn't read the Seven to Nine novel, I recommend watching The Raven and then immediately coming to this novel. I think, it's a, I think this really works well almost as a sequel to The Raven. And it takes it to a whole nother level. Because, yeah, in The Raven, we're getting so much information about Seven's past. And now we're bringing elements of her past into this book. Mm-hmm.
2: I really felt that the appearance of Annika in the novel was more of um, a dissociative identity disorder type thing, where Annika was protecting the rest of Seven's brain from further trauma.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Because for a good section of this novel, she's presenting as Annika Hansen, as opposed to Seven of Nine, that Mm -hmm. kind of personality comes to the fore. And you know, she ha- kind of has that childlike innocence about her uh, gone or kind of the memories of her being seven of nine, both mm-hmm. in the collective and post on assimilation on Voyager. <laughs> so yeah, that's a really good point that that's kind of, uh, protecting her psyche It almost, it seems.
0: Yeah. Because Annika Han- Hansen really is Yeah, the protector of Seven in this because Mm -hmm. Seven's going through all this trauma by having these memories resurfacing of people and beings that she assimilated. And it's so traumatic that she suppresses the memories of Mm -hmm. not just them, but even of herself and regresses back to being Annika as a child. And so we spend maybe about a chapter of, of the book where she's Annika Hansen, but then as things develop, she starts to remember that she's seven of nine. And I like the conversation she had. I think it was with Harry saying, you know, you liked Anna- Annika better than you like seven. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's like, no, it's not that we like one better than the other. It's just, well, we can relate to her more. She's more like us, but that doesn't mean we like her better than you.
1: Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point there where, you know, she's got that kind of, I don't know exactly how to put it, but that that kind of insecurity that how she is as Seven of Nine is cold, distant, and unrelatable. And Annika Hansen is kind of, in her mind, the person that the rest of the crew wants her to be. And I think there's, there's even that moment where Janeway thinks... Kind of something along the lines of, you know, the goal of returning Seven's humanity to her almost seems to have been realized now that she's presenting as Annika Hansen. But then she kind of takes that back and says, oh, no, this isn't this isn't the end goal. This Mm -hmm. is a trauma. You know, this isn't what we're going for here.
0: I think it's really saying a lot at this point that you're talking about when Seven returns and now... I don't know what you guys think of this, but, you know, she was now attempting suicide.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. So there's, there's kind of a lot going on with regards to that. So for one thing, we kind of alluded to this, her memories of people she's assimilated or people who have been assimilated by the Borg, are coming to the forefront. And this is this is the part where it really feels like uh, this season five episode, Infinite Regress. If you remember that episode, that's the one where uh, that's what's happening. Basically, Seven is kind of exhibiting different personalities mm-hmm. of different people who have been assimilated by the Borg over the years. And, you know, that's all happening. Uh, I actually wanted to rewatch that episode too before... We recorded the show. I did not have time for that. I did. But Bruce. I did. I knew you <laughs> right did. Right before
0: we came on, I watched it with my wife. She watched it with me. It was fun. <laughs> Nicely done. It's a good episode, too. It's a fun episode for sure. It is, but it did remind me a lot of this book. I mean, the whole story isn't the same, but Seven's experiences are very similar. What I find mm-hmm. really interesting, though, is this book was published in September of 98 That episode then came out in November of 98. And like Suzanne mentioned earlier, they were just like um, just months apart from each other. But when you think about it, this book was being written probably at the same time the episode was being written.
1: (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I think it's nothing more than just kind of two people having the same idea at the same time. I don't think there's anything nefarious there. Like you said, they're probably being written at the same time for sure. Um, But in this one, it's kind of it kind of plays out differently because there are these telepaths aboard Voyager. And what they're kind of doing is um, they're subtly manipulating the crew to get what they want to get them to take them where they need to be. But they realize that there is an obstacle to that. And that's seven of nine and seven of nine could possibly uh, get past that and, and be immune to their effects. So what they end up doing is incapacitating her by kind of bringing these memories to the fore and taking her out of the picture, basically. But there's one particular individual among these telepaths who takes it further than even the rest of the group wants them to do and is kind of traumatizing seven, bringing these memories forward and urging her to harm herself. And that's where we kind of get to what you were talking about, Bruce, where Seven of Nine is like, attempting suicide, like she has a shard of rock against her skin and is about to commit this, you know, terrible act on herself. And I was I was really surprised when we got there in the novel that, you know, they were taking it right to that point, right up to the line there. And that was definitely very affecting.
2: And I think it had a lot to do with the dissociative disorders that she was going through because of all those memories, the identity disorder, the depersonalization, dissociative amnesia. She was experiencing all of those. Lump that into her obvious PTSD that she has from being a Borg, It made it so much easier for, I can't get his name right, In Mark, I'm probably saying it wrong, but that's how it, <laughs> I kept reading it in my head. It made it easier for him to manipulate her into almost committing suicide.
1: Yeah, and it was it was kind of a gradual process, right, over mm-hmm. the course of a long period of time. And in a lot of ways it kind of mirrored when someone is going through that depression. It accelerated for sure, but it definitely followed that same kind of trajectory that you see play out like that. So it was, you know, it was definitely the outside influence of this telepath who wants her to kill herself, but there are a lot of, like you say, underlying issues there that really contribute to that as well. I think that's what really stood
0: out to me is Seven's underlying issues. And no matter how much growth she has, there's always going to be underlying issues, just like anybody has. And you always have to work at it. You never get over it. You never get over really that PTSD. That's always going to be with her. Maybe easier to suppress it may be easier to get over but it's still there and i thought about that that this is kind of an extreme situation that you know as she's going through all this experience through this book all the trauma that she's experiencing it pushes her to that edge and it made me also think of star trek picard of her being pushed to the edge with um going after bejazel and and killing her she had to have that revenge and it's like she's been so under so much trauma that sometimes she she takes it to that edge you know and and i don't know you know even though in picard it's been 30 years or whatever she's still working at it i'm not i guess what i'm trying to say is there's some criticism about seven uh murdering in picard but well, that's a whole other discussion, but I Justifiable also feel like homicide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm thinking, yeah, but she has, you know, a background that really does push her sometimes mm-hmm. a little too far.
1: Yeah. And I mean, obviously, when this book was written, there was no thought of of that turn in Seven's life down the road. But when reading it now, I definitely had that in mind. And I feel like the characterization of Seven in this novel and what she goes through really does lend itself to that kind of eventual pathway of Seven of Nine in Star Trek Picard. And again, like, obviously no way that those two are connected, but you know, the book doesn't exist in a vacuum. I definitely had those thoughts on my mind as I was reading it.
0: Mm -hmm. Suzanne, what do you think of her portrayal in Picard? I really enjoyed
2: it, actually. That was one of the highlights of Picard for me. I could see her going down that path when she says she's lost her family, she's lost everyone. It makes me think, okay, yeah, nobody from Voyager is still around. So she's gonna go a little cuckoo and but still try and help out people at the
0: same time. You know, the, the suicide scene in here, and not that it's a real dramatic, I mean, it's very short and she doesn't commit suicide. Mm -hmm. So anybody who hasn't read the (laughs) book, obviously she lives, but what prevents her is her own self in a sense, because Annika Hansen appears to her young Annika. She sees this child and she's like, who's there? And she's seeing Annika and Annika saying, you know, stop, don't do this to ourselves. Don't do mm-hmm. it to you. Don't do it to me. Don't do it to ourselves. And I just wonder if as we watch Voyager now, and I know this is a novel and it's not canon. It wasn't written by the, the uh, people who write the show and such. But, you know, I feel like Annika is always that, that voice in her head. You know, as things go on, she probably hears Annika in her head as she is trying to find humanity and realize, well, I was once human. I may not remember a lot about it, but Annika's still there somewhere, talking to her and saying, "This is the path. Do this. Don't do that."
1: Yeah, the use of Annika in this novel as kind of that internal voice. I thought was really interesting. And I like that you bring that up, that, you know, going forward, you can kind of almost imagine that she's there influencing seven and kind of being that, uh, I don't know if conscience is the right word, but, you know, just that, that inner voice that is not one that's kind of at the forefront, but maybe is always kind of there. And I could almost see the types of stories that happen on Voyager from time to time, I could almost see that have being a, a something that we would have seen in Voyager if, mm-hmm. you know, one of the writers had thought of it instead of the novel writer having thought of that. It was a really interesting aspect to her personality in this novel.
2: Well, clearly Annika's still in there in Picard, because when she's the Borg queen, Annika still has work to do. Yes. She says mm-hmm. that line, and it's like, oh, yeah. So Anika's still in perfect. there leading her
0: along.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great little uh, tie in there. I love that. Yeah, that's, that's perfect.
0: Excellent. And 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 as you guys are talking, it's like, well, that's that's us too. I mean, our younger selves are probably always talking to ourselves. I mean, we're like seven. We've had a childhood and we've been assimilated into adulthood and into the real world. But there's times that you're dealing with things in your life that you're Hearing that little voice in the back of your head—maybe not the child in you is talking, mm. but people who were influ- influential in your childhood, your your parents, a sibling, you know, siblings, a mentor, an uncle, whoever, a teacher. You know, I, I mean, at least for me, and I'm like, you know, old as crap, and I still hear <laughs> my mom. No, I'm not old as crap, but yeah, I still hear my mom. Like, I do something like, and I'm thinking, oh, my mom would be like. You really shouldn't do that. But I almost feel like that's what
1: with is like telling Seven Seven. You really shouldn't do that. <laughs> that's good. When you said we're like Seven, I thought you meant the age for a second. Thought, but <laughs> well, okay. that I'm, I'm more of a twelve year old. Thank you. <laughs> Suzanne's older than us <laughs> by <like> five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of a men versus women thing too, right? You know, women are generally a bit more mature than us guys, I find. So that, that's good. We're all seven, but Suzanne Mentally is 12. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's all making sense now. Oh, man. So speaking of aspects of Seven's personality, there's it manifests itself in another way as well. And this is kind of tying directly back to that episode we were talking about, The Raven from season four, We get these blackbirds, and Seven of Nine is seeing them uh, around her, kind of hallucinating them, but they're not necessarily related to the memories of the Borg that are coming to the forefront. It's kind of an aspect of her personality that's coming forward as well. So over the course of the novel, they increase in number. She keeps seeing a few more and a few more, and In scenes such as, like we were talking about, where she was about to commit suicide, you know, they play a role as well. They start making a commotion and squawking and pecking at her to get her to stop. So, you know... There's there's kind of an indication that, like I said, they're part of her personality coming to the front. Where did you guys kind of see them coming into play as an aspect of her personality rather than an outside influence? Because I think, you know, I kind of come to that realization slowly over the course of the book that they're not a menacing presence, but something to kind of help her.
2: Uh, well, for me, it, it tied back into a dissociative disorder. It was more of a derealization disorder where she's seeing things that aren't in reality. So that also ties back into the dissociative identity, dissociative identity disorder. So it's like they had all three going on at the same time in little bits and pieces in the book. So
1: I like to read about mental health.
2: (laughs) That's why my brain went there. (laughs)
1: No, that's great. Like, that's that's actually an excellent insight and, and definitely makes this podcast sound a lot smarter, too. So, thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't really read about mental health. I probably should. Um, I mean, I've read some things. But anyway, um, I don't know what I, I – I just remember reading the book thinking, okay, the Ravens, is this somehow connected to the Raven, the ship that she was on when she got mm-hmm. assimilated by the boar? it didn't really feel like it was going there, but I'm like, why so many ravens and why do they keep appearing? And it took me a while. I think, yeah, I was getting towards the end. Like I knew, of course there weren't really ravens there, but I knew it was something (laughs) probably in her subconscious trying to tell her something. I mean, that was coming across. The other thing real quick that I picked up on, if when you read the book, every time she sees a new raven, it adds to the count and each chapter it's one raven. So every is added. So every chapter number equals the amount of ravens in that chapter.
1: Oh. So if you read chapter that. one,
0: it's one raven chapter two, it's two ravens chapter three, and it goes all the way up and there's 24 ravens and there's 24 chapters.
1: That's interesting. <laughs> that was actually something. And I, I, I don't think I realized that until the very last chapter when I was like, Oh, chapter 24, it's the last chapter. And one of the first things I read when I was picking it up again after having put it down for a while, was, you know, they were now 24 ravens or blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's just too darn clever. (laughs) Yeah, I went back and
0: double checked it. And yeah, every chapter, it's like, you know, when you're in chapter 18, she's talking about, she's now seen 18, you know, it's just every chapter is one more raven.
1: Oh, that's funny. I love that. (laughs) So yeah, um, basically we learn kind of through the course of the novel that, the ravens she's seeing like you say they're a part of her subconscious and they're giving her clues to the plot behind what these telepaths the skeddens I don't know if that's the pre- correct pronunciation but that's how i said it that's kind of where i'm <laughs> at okay cool i'm in good company then so uh, they were they have this plot they want to get to the emperor of this co- this this empire they're a part of And what happened was the Emperor had denied aid to their planet when they were being attacked by the Borg. The planet was, of course, almost entirely wiped out. And they want to, they assume, the Voyager crew kind of figures out towards the end, they want to attack and kill the Emperor or execute some sort of retribution against Mm -hmm. him. And... Seven kind of slowly comes to the realization, thanks to these ravens, uh, that, you know, what their ultimate plot is. And uh, she relates it back to the nursery rhyme that she knows from her youth, which is sing a song of sixpence, pocket full of rye, four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie, so that 24 blackbirds... Mm -hmm. What did you guys kind of think of this plot turn where we realize that it that's what's giving her a clue as to what the Skeddens are planning?
0: I was just like, wait, I, I thought it was interesting as I was reading that this nursery rhyme was being brought up because of the blackbirds in the pie. And we were seeing blackbirds, which are ravens, which relates to the episode, The Raven and the ship, The Raven. I was like, oh, well, this is a nice little connection. But I like it even more and more how it resolves, because at the same time, this is a nursery rhyme from, again, Annika's background, her experience. So it's something she knew as a child. And again, it's that childness of herself coming back and rescuing her and giving her clues. She's always tapped into it, even though she doesn't realize she is.
2: Their nursery rhyme confused me at first because I had always heard it as being um, a coded message from Blackbeard because sixpence was what their, a pirate's weekly wage was and a pocket full of rye was the, the whiskey on his hip. But apparently the, the, the nursery rhyme is quite older than that. So whoever told me that was wrong?
0: Oh, but that huh. sounds so good.
1: <laughs> I know. Yeah, it I was sounds like really that, cool. Yeah, Love beer, no.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so you know the the rest of the nursery rhyme. It goes: uh, When the pie was opened, the birds began to sing. Now wasn't that a dainty dish to set before a king? So this kind of relates to the plot. Uh, what the Skedans are eventually going to do is they have this orb that is. This weapon of some kind. They don't know exactly what it is. The Voyager crew, I should say, doesn't know exactly what it is. They managed to sneak it aboard by manipulating the Voyager crew's minds and all that stuff. But the assumption is that it's some sort of weapon of mass destruction or a bomb or something like that. But of course, what happens is it gets smashed at the feet of the Emperor and basically all of the memories of the skedans who were assimilated or killed when their planet was destroyed by the Borg. Um, all the assembled people hear it, but the emperor experiences all of it. So the nursery rhyme kind of portended what that was all going to turn out to be. Um, you know, I, I I guess I had a little bit of an issue with her kind of understanding exactly what it all was, but it it kind of works because it's also using the memories of the Skedens who were assimilated. That Seven of Nine is kind of experiencing one in particular who has a personal connection to one of the people aboard Voyager, one of the the Skedans aboard Voyager. I don't know. I I thought that was an interesting way to bring it around and and tie it all together. Like at first, I was very skeptical, but then kind of making that connection, I was like, oh, okay, I can kind of see how that would work.
0: Yeah, I felt the same at first, but then I realized, well, she has had all these memories of people that she assimilated. And one of the people that she assimilated that she had memories of was Riv, R H I V. I guess it's Riv, I don't know. But that is the wife of Tom. Tamak, who is one of the skeddens and he's there doing this whole, you know, dropping this weapon off, you know, to get to the emperor. He's part of that. And she has memories of his wife, who she assimilated. And so she has a connection and memories and stuff. So I can see where somehow there's a connection between them affecting her mind and her actually having memories of one of their wives and somehow that kind of leads with this uh, nursery rhyme going and all this stuff that just enough little clues that it just hit her as to, Oh wait, I think I've figured out what's going on here. I don't know. That's a little bit of a stretch, but that's what I was kind of thinking in my mind. Yeah. That uh, she
2: figured out that they really didn't mean harm to everyone, just to the man who didn't come through for them. Who essentially killed mm-hmm. that entire planet.
1: Which leads her to basically disobeying an order from Janeway and allowing the Skeddens to proceed. What did you guys think of that kind of decision of her to let them go ahead with this plot? Wait, who led what to do what plot? What? <laughs> Well, it it led Seven of Nine to allow them to go ahead with the plot, right? She had mm-hmm. them kind of dead to rights. She had her phaser on them. But once this kind of epiphany came to her and she realized what they were going to do, she let them go ahead and proceed to enact their plot against Janeway's orders, which Janeway kind of dresses her down a little bit for towards the end of the novel. I don't know. What did you guys think of that? Well, I was just How thinking,
0: I don't, I don't remember... Her letting that. i mean, maybe she did. I just didn't remember that part. I remember that the doctors watching them. They're in prison, mm-hmm. and then somehow his holographic self, out. yeah, and they break out, and she's yeah. going. And after she follows them.
2: them on the planet, and then she has them, and she stops. She's like, "I understand now." And they yes. go on. And
1: she steps aside and lets them go into okay. the arena. That yeah. part, okay. I was on the
0: ship <laughs> still. Okay, I'm with you. Oh, sorry.
2: Well, she's okay. always disobeying no, I, I Janeway's saying. orders anyway. It's not like this is gonna be the last time. It's not definitely not the first time. True. Very
1: <laughs> I true. think even one of the Skeddens says that to her. Like <laughs> <laughs> you've disobeyed her orders before. I'm sure you'll do it again <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think it's right. I think she knew what was she knew to let them go. Again, it's like she there's a connection there, you know? Um mm-hmm. And she knows them in a sense because she's assimilated their kind. She knows their kind and she knows that they're non-aggressive and what they're about to do isn't to murder the king necessarily, which I think is interesting Mm -hmm. because murder is a word that came up a few times in this novel because even the doctor referred to the blackbirds and murder. And she questioned that Mm -hmm. and he goes, well, that's what you call a group of blackbirds, of, of ravens. You call them a murder. Mm-hmm. And so in her mind, she kept thinking murder was going to happen.
1: Well, I do love how she kind of, they they kind of give clues to that as well, because a murder is actually a group of crows, yeah. not ravens. Right. And she kind of realizes, wait a minute, these aren't crows, they're ravens. And the doctor informs her that a group of ravens is called an unkindness. So yes. it's kind of like, oh, these aren't crows. So it's not going to be a murder. They're ravens. It's merely <laughs> going to be an unkindness. <laughs>
2: it's just going to be a little unpleasant, but it's okay. Yeah. Now I don't like how Janeway chose to believe that she was still under the Skedden's mind tricks when she let them go. It's like, come on, Seven can make that decision on her own. She didn't need, have to still be being manipulated by them.
1: <laughs> I love that you brought that up because I was going to mention that Janeway. I, and I, f- I feel like that's more for Janeway's own benefit. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I will have to discipline or punish Seven of Nine for disobeying an order. But I'm just going to tell myself that she was still under the influence, even though she's right here telling me, no, I wasn't. I made the decision. Janeway's <laughs> kind of like sticking her fingers in her ear going, la, 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 like, la, 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 la. la. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, no, you're totally under the influence. It's a lot of paperwork honestly if I have to give you a reprimand. So, no, <laughs> you're under the influence. It's fine. <laughs> That's
0: what she kept telling Harry Kim every time she wouldn't promote him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Harry. Oh man.
0: The That's another pimp.
1: thing. Oh, I, now I I already think that Harry is so poorly treated on Voyager by the writers <laughs> and then by extension the characters around him because the writers are writing them. But in this novel even I thought Harry Kim was just portrayed as such a I, I don't know what. But like that was kind of a thing early on when 7 of 9 was aboard was that Harry Kim was kind of infatuated with her uh-huh. but you know by this point they had moved past that that wasn't a thing anymore but in this one harry just still kept being like oh tongue tied around seven and like flustered when i don't know she kissed him from some really weird situation that had come up like yeah did you guys find that as well i was really frustrated with how t- harry was portrayed
2: why did he have to get kissed again come on
0: leave that alone <laughs> I, I, I'm just used to it with Harry that it didn't bother oh, me at <laughs> all. That's that's the saddest
1: thing of all.
2: <laughs> at least Harry got some stuff to do in this novel. Poor Chicote pushed a few buttons and that was it. It's like, excuse me, Chicote.
1: Where yeah. Now that's that's funny too, because I was gonna bring up Chicote because he shows up kind of at the end of this novel and offers an alternative explanation for the the appearance of the ravens and i literally when i was reading i was like oh yeah chakotay's there (laughs) he's had nothing to do in this whole novel poor guy i mean even balana
0: and tom argued you know at least they were doing something too
2: (laughs) and they had a hollow program
0: of talos four how is that
1: possible yeah yeah I wondered that. Too. I totally forgot. I read forgot. that and I was like, "Wait a minute, what? What? Yeah, how, how? That was interesting. Yeah, and I mean, even to the point where I think they said there was like a native Telosian boat that they were in or something like that.
2: Yeah, something like, like that. But still, it just made no sense to me. I'm like,
1: "No, you can't. Yeah. Have that. The rules have been relaxed in the past century,
2: <laughs> apparently.
1: <laughs> Talosfor has a booming tourist industry. Didn't you know? It's." <laughs>
0: can't remember what if it was a book or it was a book, wasn't it that Talus Four by the twenty fourth century was rebuilt and was a prospering city and
1: I it was that. kind of on its way to that at the end of Burning Dreams. That's I think it. Spock yeah. was yeah mm-hmm. having something to do with that.
0: So it made me think of that, like you know, it's a different Talus Four, but I know those books aren't connected probably in any way whatsoever. But it did make me think about it.
1: it did allow me to imagine like a hollow program with like those blue singing plants and stuff. I was like, Oh, that's kind (laughs) of cool.
0: That
2: that would be neat.
1: (laughs) Well, Tuvok, he didn't have much to do either. Did he? Not a lot. (laughs) He did kind of took part in the away team, which was, you know, he had a little bit there. Yeah. He wept apparently, according to one part.
0: (laughs) 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 That's why Chakotay wasn't in the book much. He was in his cabin, just weeping all the time. He just had Aww. a bad week. Aww. I don't know. He needed a hug. <laughs> and Seven so, wasn't um, there
1: to give him a hug. Oh well. Hey now. No, that that'll come in a couple seasons. <laughs> <It's fine>. Unacceptable. <laughs> so speaking of Chakotay, like I said, uh he had kind of an alternate um theory as to why the Ravens show up. What did you think of his thought that, you know, this is actually Seven of Nine's spirit guide. And uh, that that's why they show up. Well, I liked it
0: because wasn't Christy Golden, the author of this book, didn't she write the spirit walk books? Yep. Okay. <laughs> we can talk about that, too. Yeah. Cause, but now the spirit walk books <laughs> came after this. So those were written later. But I think she likes the whole spirit guide thing that she decided to write two books about it later. So I think that's mm-hmm. her thing.
1: <laughs> I was just
2: like Chakotay. Really, you're you're bringing that up again. You're dipping your toe in those waters. Don't do it. Uh, no.
1: we didn't. He didn't say Akuchimoya, so we we didn't. <laughs> we didn't get hear that. the little
2: flute music. <laughs> little pan flute
0: music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Chakotay's had more <laughs> to do in this episode than the whole novel. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this is true. This is absolutely true. <laughs> Um, I do like that you brought up Tom and Bolana because there's kind of an interesting subplot with regards to that, too. And I think this is kind of our first indication early on that these telepaths are capable of more uh, than just kind of benign type things. We have this kind of younger woman, female of the Skedons, who is infatuated with Tom Paris and sees... B'Elanna as an impediment so he's she's kind of making her be angry and making Tom ignore her to focus all his attention on her I I thought that was an interesting kind of foreshadowing of the dangers that these people could present because you know we find out later on that they're kind of against this kind of direct manipulation like that and and Mm -hmm. for their own gain and they all kind of turn on her. But that's kind of the first indication, I think, that whatever's being done to Seven is more malicious than the rest of the group would have you believe.
0: Yeah, I don't really remember that much about the Tom and Balana's storyline that much. Like To me, that makes a little sense, because it didn't really connect that much with me in the book, with the rest of the hmm. story. I-,
2: I was just confused, because Tom kept seeing her as more of like, a preteen, so it kind of creeped me out. I'm like,
1: it. No. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really weird as well. Like, I, I I don't know because what they were trying to go with for that because, yeah, that's that was my impression as well was when we were first introduced to this person, I was thinking child. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then later on, I'm like, oh, okay, so wait, what? Because <laughs> I, I was really confused by that.
2: They grow as fast as Naomi Wildman does.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I kept thinking Naomi Wildman. (laughs) So I guess the kind of last thing I wanted to bring up, and it's a very minor point, but uh, the name Lissa Campbell came up early in this novel. And I was like, what is that name? That name's so familiar. Uh, She's the transporter operator on Voyager. And I thought that was interesting that this is a character who has apparently appeared in a number of other Voyager novels that are contemporary to this time, and I I hadn't realized that. But she does show up in the Voyager relaunch post the end of the series, uh, most notably in the Spirit Walk duology, which has been brought up already in this discussion once. Um, Bruce, did you notice that character having uh, played a role here that you know, she was in those other books as well. No,
0: I mean, I recognize the name, but I never took the time to think, where have I heard that? I just think when I saw it, I was like, oh, that name looks familiar. I guess she was on an episode of Voyager once or something. And I just kind of dismissed it. But uh it's good to hear that. Yeah. I remember now
1: that you're mentioning, especially full circle,
0: I remembering this character. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
1: Yeah, she later becomes the operations officer on Voyager, uh, bridge officer, after the end of the series. Uh, but she is uh, done away with in full circle when Kirsten Beyer <laughs> takes over the series. So, yeah.
0: Now, did hmm. you remember that, Dan, or did you look it up? I did have to look that okay, up. Okay, uh, You made yeah, me feel I, better now. I feel like Dan <laughs> remembers everything, and I don't. <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, I, I remember a lot with the episodes in the films, but for some reason, the books, I always have to refer back and look up. I, I don't have a memory uh, for that stuff as well as I do the shows. But you have good memory of Spirit Walk, don't you? Don't you? I have oh. memories of Spirit Walk. <laughs> we'll leave it at
0: that. Hey, those episodes, we reviewed the two books, Spirit Walk, Almost a year ago. It was a year ago when we did those. So if anybody oh, hasn't wow. listened, listen back. Those are fun episodes.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, with the end of this episode, the Skedons have, um, unleashed their weapon on the emperor and he's now kind of, uh, insensate. He's out of commission for probably a couple years by the sounds of it, based on, on what he goes through experiencing all the, the emotions of the end of this species. And the assistant, the the kind of first underling of him that we've been seeing throughout the novel, is able to take over for him in the Empire, which is great news. Thank <laughs> he's goodness. He's a character I actually yes. ended up really liking. Xanarit yeah. was that his name or something yeah, like that? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What did you guys think of that guy? I love that he's kind of in charge at the end. He's kind of masterminded this plot against the Emperor a little bit, too, which is kind of fun.
2: I just questioned, was he able to call off the Tuck-Tack or the Coup or whatever they're calling themselves these days? They, they kind them of... them off? Did anybody? They just sort of disappeared? Yeah.
1: They just kind of disappeared after they got shot a few times. But the book even goes out of its way to say that, like, oh, they didn't get stunned or killed. They just kind of got shot and slowed down a little bit. So, yeah, yeah where'd they disappear to at the end?
2: So are they still going to come back and kill
0: the Skiddons? I want to know these things. <laughs> I don't think so, because I feel like, you know, the Emperor was really kind of pushing that to happen. And I don't know. That's good. That's a good point. That could be another story after this. What does the Q do? And do they come after Voyager, who is filled with the, wor- the worms? Not worms. They're filled worms. with the worms. <laughs> I'm not used to calling people worms. You know, that's a weird way to say that, but they're the Worms.
2: There has to be some sort of fanfic out there that can satisfy my (laughs) need.
0: Or you could write one yourself.
2: Oh, I'm done with those years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So are we saying that the coup go to the same place that Narek did at the end of Star Trek Picard? (laughs) Yeah, we don't know where. Somewhere. Okay they're just they're somewhere I thought there was brief mention of the coup
0: at the end I feel like there was something Hmm. but yeah it wasn't significant though
1: okay well I guess uh, with that all I have left to ask the both of you is what are your kind of final thoughts about this story and anything that we haven't brought up that you would like to talk about with regards to Seven of Nine Uh, Suzanne
2: I think we brought up everything I wanted to say but (laughs) I I really did enjoy the book, but it definitely needed a better title than Seven of Nine.
1: <laughs> if you were to give it a rating of some kind, and and what we do on the show, as I'm sure you know, I'm sure listeners know, you know, give it a kind of a fun rating, four out of five whatevers or something, <laughs> or however many.
2: I I will have to give this book a 4.5 out of five
1: mysterious orbs. Nice. That's a good rating. So, yeah, definitely a lot of love for this novel. That's excellent. Bruce? So, I'm
0: just like doing some quick research here. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, <laughs> chapter 23 the coup followed them, but the guards followed the coup. There was a brief skirmish, and the coup were trapped on all sides by imperial guards. And then, chapter dun, dun, 24, dun. it says, it was, Jane says, it was you. Breathe, Janeway. Uh, you saved us from the coup. She's talking to mm-hmm. Uh You saved us from the coup, got us the audience with the Emperor. So, I guess they're like gone.
2: They're in prison. <laughs> they're in prison. So,
0: um, makes sense. But yeah, the Emperor baytech He was. He's a piece of work. Um, gosh, that guy. I'm glad. He, yeah. Mm, no, I'm glad he's done. Yeah, he- Little immature, little piece of crap. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I like um, the Skedans. I like how they manipulated the crew, not in a bad way. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's a bad way to manipulate, but they were using their telepathic abilities to have Voyager take them to this home world to get their revenge with the Emperor. But at the same time, you know, the reason was because, you know, the Borg had attacked their planet and the emperor was supposed to send a fleet of ships to protect them. And he didn't do that. And then he spread rumors for people not to go to the planet because they mm-hmm. weren't wiped out by the Borg, but by the plague and, or some plague or something like that. And, and I just thought that was interesting how the emperor was really like trying to sweep them under the rug and just didn't take didn't care for them and then when they get there they make him feel their anguish and their deaths and their feelings and all that stuff i like what what a perfect way to do that in a lot of ways they're Mm -hmm. non-aggressive but they were aggressive the skettins were aggressive in doing this i mean it's still a traumatic thing even though they didn't kill the emperor i mean he's basically in a coma for all intents and purposes but I thought the characterization of the Voyager crew was well done. I like learning about, uh, seven having memories of people. she she's assimilated and how that affected her and the whole Annika Hansen, uh, stuff that we've talked about. So I will give this novel, I give it 20 out of 24
1: blackbirds in a pie. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, no, I I thought it was an excellent novel. I really enjoyed the kind of exploration of Seven of Nine as a character. The alien races, I always love how novels can do more interesting and varied alien races than we see on the television shows. One thing I don't like as much in novels is when they just throw a bunch of letters out there for names and stuff because (laughs) they know, oh, nobody has to pronounce this on a television screen. So (laughs) <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. Well, it's no, just, that's like, how, how do you pronounce half of this stuff? That's what I want to know.
0: But that's interesting because we've had conversations with authors where we'll say, now, how do you pronounce that? And they'll go, I don't know. I just wrote that on the page.
1: <laughs> Even they, they, they don't know. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought it was a, a great story. I love that, you know, the story kind of relies on assumptions. Like you assume that these telepaths are all kind of complicit in the horrible things that you know one or two of them are doing and you assume that what they're planning is some sort of mass destruction many casualties bomb or something like that but in the end that's not what they're doing they're you know not their their intentions aren't peaceful certainly but they're not as ruthless or as um unrelenting and and horrible as we might assume that they are. So, you know, I, I, repre- I appreciated that. I liked that there's a little bit no- more nuance to it than just, you know, good guys versus bad guys, except maybe when it comes to the coup, they're just kind of bad guys. And, uh, the aforementioned Emperor Batik as well. So, um, but yeah, an excellent novel. I think I would have to give it uh, four out of five coup ships hiding within the imperial vessels or whatever and also <laughs> when they said imperial vessels my brain just kept showing a star destroyer star. in my head so yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of cool <laughs> well with that I guess uh, all that's left to say is Suzanne thank you so much for coming on the show this was a really fun discussion and where can people find you if they're interested in all the things you do both on the network and off well,
2: thank you again for having me this this was great fun Uh, You can find me uh, every other week or so on to the journey with Zachary and Liam talking about everything Voyager, but I'm mostly talking about Chakotay. (laughs) You can also find me on Twitter. My handle is kjainway8, and I'll occasionally pop up in the Babel Conference.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad you had a good time. And tell Chakotay we said hi.
0: Definitely. Thanks so much. (laughs) That was fun having Suzanne on because, you know, I've listened to her on To The Journey and I I love saying To The Journey. Of course, I really want to shout (laughs) it louder, but they don't really do that anymore. But, you know, I thought, well, we're getting into the Voyager novel Seven of Nine and like, why not bring Suzanne on to talk about it? It's her first time on literary tracks
1: yeah definitely and it's funny you brought that up too because i i actually wanted to shout to the journey when she said it but then i remembered just like a split second before i did that that yeah they don't really do that anymore so <laughs> i didn't want to i didn't want to um disrupt uh what she was saying but uh, it's been a lot of fun talking about inappropriate shouting today but it's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on trek fm
0: Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. This place, like, it seemed like it was very easy for him to just go. It seems like, you know, the Federation and, you know, Picard and Riker and them have that mentality kind of like we would, where they were like, yeah, go get your dad. And I don't think
2: there's a scene where he asks, Permission. He just seems to kind of automatically get permission and just go and do it, which implies that the Enterprise is going to be there for quite a while.
1: Yeah, and that's what I was saying because the Enterprise is docked there and they have to deal with the um, aqueducts. The Edge, a Star Trek
0: Discovery podcast.
1: So the like it says in my little research that I did, because then I got stuck in a Wikipedia hole about Aboriginal astronomy. it says um rabbit holes which is the aboriginal or gauna word sorry for the river torrens which runs through the adelaide cbd was thought to be a reflection of the milky way known as the wadley Pari, so named because the bright stars on the edge were thought to be the campfires on the side of the river i like it the line a star trek picard podcast and then also anything with patrick um Anytime I got to act across from him, I just think my acting was a thousand times better. I, w- I was more focused, but at the same time, um, more distracted too. There were a lot of scenes where I'd be sitting there, and um, everyone would just stare at me because I'd be forgetting my lines because I was just so, you know like so absorbed and immersed in in Patrick's acting or Alison Hill's acting. I'd just forget that I was you know <laughs> that I had a job to do.
2: Yes, I can understand that.
1: Almost like you were watching him on the screen or something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. And then
2: I there was a lot of times where I'd be like, oh, am, am I meant to speak? And they'd be like, yeah, it's your, it's your turn. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> they, they just found it funny, though. The Orb.
1: Well, I do think, though, that you can have Section 31 defeated and it not be a black and white thing, because you know Section 31's desire to completely eradicate all religions because they think it's divisive is definitely their point of view Yeah, but it's also against everything the Federation is supposed to believe in, right? And so they are legitimately undermining Federation values by doing this and so I think that's the dichotomy that you want.
0: And that's what else is happening on
1: Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave a star rating and written review. If you are not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab
1: the RSS link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Those are all available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You know, we would
0: really love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there's many ways you could do that. So here's listen up, this is what you do. The best place to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel conference. So if you're on Facebook, you can join our listeners group there. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up, and then we'll let you in. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website. It's at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. And guess what? That email comes right to me and Dan. And you can also find the network on Twitter at FM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM.
1: And a special thing for Literary Treks podcast in particular, you can find us on Goodreads. We have a group on that website where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, we have great conversations happening about all of the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click join group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chamutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for literary treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not being distracted by the slowly rising number of ravens that are popping up all around you, where can we find you?
0: You know what? That nursery rhyme always makes me crave pie. I love pie. Oh,
1: I want pie too now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so when I'm not eating pie, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can also find me doing a podcast with Dan called Positively Trek. It's one of the best Star Trek podcasts out there. If you're not listening to it, something is wrong with you.
1: <laughs> uh, of course But we're I'm very modest about it, though. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> no, it's just, yeah, it's like the show, but we're talking about all other kinds of stuff trek stuff we still even talk about books and comics that comes up briefly here and there too and then um on the star wars report podcast probably about once a month you'll hear me over on there i'm not on as often but uh and then you can always find me in the babel conference so dan when you're not eating chocolate cake like seven or annika hansen likes to do but seven now likes to do where can people find you
1: Oh, that that reminds me. I actually just bought a box of chocolate cake mix that I need to do something with very soon. But when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kertrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And in fact, I'll probably tweet about that cake if I do make it. So, you know. (laughs) <laughs> one, I can do one and the other at the same time. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Kurt Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking mostly about Star Trek and on that channel on Friday nights right now, even though there's no new Star Trek Picard on me, Bruce Gibson and Brandy Jackala all get together and do a live stream and talk about Star Trek. So I'm not sure what we'll be talking about on the Friday after this episode comes out, but it'll probably be something interesting and fun. So join us there. Uh, again, that's youtube.com slash Kurt Productions. And uh, as Bruce mentioned, Positively Trek is our new podcast. Really enjoying doing that. You know, if you already listen to Positively Trek, why not tell a friend about it too? You know, let's uh let's really get that word out there. We need more positivity in our lives, so we'd really appreciate that. Hear, here. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time. Live long and read on.
2: You call that light reading? To each his own number one.